Dad Bod Rap Pod. Back at it once again. I am your host, Dim One, Damone Carter. Uh, I say host singular because my co-hosts have departed on a Hennessy and Blunt's run. Um, I wish them Godspeed. So I'm alone, but never lonely. And I have the pleasure of introducing um, this dope interview for this week's program that we did with the producer who I'm embarrassed to say I did not know a lot about, even though he is from my hometown of San Jose, California. And this would be Controller 7, who came to prominence through his production work for Anticon back when they were kind of getting their first run started, late 90s, early 2000s. He's had a really interesting career, kind of a circuitous route. Um, So, yeah, really dope interview. I would encourage folks to check out his stuff. He's got um, a couple of instrumental albums out there in, in stream world. Uh, One is called Left Hand Straw, and the other one, which came out in 2017, his most recent release, is called Right Hand Straw, and super dope. Um, He's got this really slick, innovative approach to sampling, um, the way he kind of blends things together. It feels seamless and not at all boring. I know there's kind of a lot of lo-fi, snooze cruise type of uh, sample stuff out there right now, but I, I really enjoyed uh listening to right hand straw and digging controller seven's approach to putting the music together um so yeah he he talks about his career um being attacked by an animal so you know it's the usual dad bod rap pod mix of of you know beats rhymes and life as it were um so yeah check out this interview with san jose's own controller seven All right, Dad Bod Rap Pod, we are back. Um, we've had a, a slew of dope producer interviews, and I'm sure this one will, will be no different. We want to welcome to the program producer extraordinaire, Controller7. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Right on. So what I didn't understand was that you're from San Jose, as as are we, fortunately, yep. unfortunately. <laughs> um <laughs> Can, how did what is kind of your your touch points and we'll, we'll get a little bit local and Nate will stare at me um <laughs> angrily but what we, how did you kind of get involved with the culture growing up here in San Jose uh i for me i think probably all of my music musical influences came from skateboarding mm-hmm. so that was probably the first entry point um for me in terms of a San Jose thing the the real entry in terms of hip hop, well, I guess there's two two different things. Uh, um, well, okay, kind of going roundabout here. Um, York was the first one. <laughs> Ironic. Um, so I ordered some CDs in the mail, but then when they came, they were actually records, and so I decided like a Columbia I, House kind of thing. <laughs> no, I was like, uh, when I was in high school, 
I just kind of developed this crush on Bjork and kind of she, she only had two albums at the time so I was just like looking for any new thing and I ordered something from the UK and it came and then I just decided okay well I guess I got to get a turntable <laughs> so then so then I got a turntable and I had this weird eight track player where I could play two things at once by just pushing a button in this little spot so then I just started buying 12 inches and just kind of messing around and I would make these uh, mixtapes that were terrible, like the no <laughs> mixing. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing at all, but I would sell them to people at school for $3. Um, so then I bought some, some 1200s from the, this guy in the newspaper. So that was probably like my main entry point. Once I got the 1200s, uh, that kind of pushed me over the edge and, uh, I, I really got interested in messing around with music. Um, but when I got them, I didn't know how to do anything. Uh, I even had to go back to the guy, I called him up. <laughs> I, I thought that they weren't working right. I thought the mixer was broken or something. I didn't even understand. I thought you just buy these expensive, really good ones, and like that's how mixing happens. Mm, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> so, so I went back and he kind of explained it to me, and uh, then it was like at the point where, like, if I figured out if I had two records that I figured out how to blend them, I would write it down. I was like so excited, like, oh my gosh, I found another blend, <laughs> and not like oh, I made some like really amazing blend. It was just that I matched two tempos sure right so i was just really bad at it um but around that same time i just kind of like buying records i started getting interested in um in beats and having the uh turntable and the eight-track player and allowing me to kind of play more than one sound at once uh i just started like messing around with things and um i had I didn't have any friends who did any of this stuff. I didn't have anyone to pull from. So I did it the wrong way and just kind of <laughs> bought a drum machine from Guitar Center. Terrible one. I thought like, okay, if I have this drum machine and uh, I think I maybe had a four track, I just thought that's how you do it. Right. And then the drum sounds were all terrible. <laughs> um, what then machine I was this? Um, it was a, a Roland, gosh, I want to say maybe it was like a DR5 or something. It was like mm. a very kind of basic, I mean, you probably could use it to do something good, but I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. And it wasn't, brakes weren't coming out of it. Right. It was just like. Stock very, drum sounds. Yeah. Um, so then the next thing I got was, a um. Uh, MS1, gosh, is that what it was? Uh, Roland MS1, which is a very like terrible phrase sampler. Mm. And so I thought, same thing. I probably told my parents, like, once I get this, that's all I need. <laughs> uh, but I didn't understand anything about sequencing. So it didn't have a sequencer. You just had to play. It, you could record, but it just recorded whatever you played. Mm. So if you wanted to loop something, you had to hold it down and then you had to push the other sound at the right time. Uh, it, it was terrible. <laughs> um, but 
uh, at that. So when all of that was happening, um, Dave Dub uh, was associated, yeah, associated with Peanut Butter Wolves and early Stone Throw and those things. Um, he worked at Tower Records. Yep. So I was always buying records at Tower, and I just started talking to him, and he like very subtly, not telling me that he was in that group. He sold me uh, an endlessness and machinery tape. Um, (laughs) Yikes. So I was like the annoying kid who would come and just talk his ear off while he was working. Um, And so he found out that, like, I I probably said, like, oh, yeah, I got a drum machine and a four track. And uh, he heard four track and just latched onto that. And so then. He asked if he could come over and record. So he didn't know anything about me. It wasn't me making beats. They just wanted to use my four track. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, so he, him and uh, Tape Master Stuff came over and uh, they recorded a song. So I think technically I have an unreleased song there somewhere <laughs> at my house on a four track. Um, but Steph brought over the Insonic EPS and when I saw him use that it was like like my mind like just completely opened I was like oh my gosh like I finally understood like how it worked Mm. because it had an actual sequencer on it so he he showed me how it worked and then I went uh to the starving musician which I don't know if those still exist. It but is still it, there. Still yeah, there. on Steven's Street. Still, still starving. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's <laughs> still starving. Um, I got a EPS from there. Okay. I think it was probably like 400 bucks or something. And uh, so once I got that, that was kind of like, that was the real tipping point. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I would do a lot of things like loop a 3-4 sample in 4-4 four, four, hmm. but then like put the drums on it on 4-4 four, four, and like but I didn't I didn't know I didn't even know enough to hear that that was wrong <laughs> but there are people who like that kind of stuff sure. so <laughs> so I think when I did make those mistakes and I didn't even know about it um, some people like still liked the way it sounded <clears throat> um, so kind of all around that same time so Dave Dope they came over I had that tape so I had that acapella of him rapping because I had the four track then like I took some beat that I made and I put it under him rapping not even having any concept of that you had to rap on the beat I mean I understood from listening (laughs) yeah I just like played the beat and then played the vocals and they weren't even synced up at all um, and I gave him a tape of it. And, uh, he was he was always like super nice, and uh, but that was probably like my main entry point to everything. And so when I got the Insonic, um, I think I had it probably for like a few months, and then I made my first tape ever, um, which there's probably only like thirty of. Um, and I was going to De Anza College at the time, and uh, I just was making it kind of like a mixtape. Mm. I didn't I didn't know what to do with everything, so I just kind of decided to put it all together 
on one long thing. Um, so yeah, I definitely didn't know what I was doing and, um, but I didn't really like, it was around the same time as like fun crusher. So like company flow. Mm -hmm. So there was this like, not that company flow or fun crusher is cringeworthy, but at the time there was this like flip it attitude of like, <laughs> like, Oh, you flipped that sample so hard. And sometimes that like really meant like, wow, like I can't believe what that person did with that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was, Oh, that's like awful, but you flipped it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, you really butchered that. Yeah. So, in a hip -hop I, think way. I was, I was definitely riding the line of like awful and like, Oh, that was kind of cool. Like there was a lot of like weird accidents. Mm. Um, so those first two, like the first two tapes that I did, um, I don't really, to me, like I hadn't, tried, I hadn't figured things out yet. So to me, those don't really count. <laughs> um, I know they're like, you can find stuff on the internet, but to me, like I hadn't gotten to like my sound yet. Mm. So those ones seem to me like a whole different thing. Um, yeah. So, so that's so kind of my. Your origin story. Shout out to uh, Dave Dove and Tape Master stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah. how'd you get involved with, with, uh, Anacon and kind of that whole movement? Um, so that actually came out of those tapes. Um, so there's one other, one other person I got to mention, uh, in my origin story is, uh, Ken Hamilton, Spider-Man. Yeah, He's yeah. Still, of course. Um, is... he, he, like, I will give him credit as like the person who, made me feel like I could do it because the first tape I made, he listened to it and he told me like there was something there and that I should keep doing it. Mm. And this, I trusted what he said because he had a radio show. He was the yeah. buyer for Rasputin's. Um, so that like that one little comment like meant so much to me and um, kind of just let me know like, all right, like I'll just keep trying this. Um, so those two tapes, the first one, uh, I only gave to people and I don't think I, there's maybe like 20 to 30 of them. Um, but the second one, um, ATAC, which was a mail order catalog. Yeah. Um, I was buying all kinds of stuff from there. So I just asked if they would carry it and I sent him one. Uh, so P minus who ran ATAC he started carrying the tape and then soul who went on to start anticon uh he had just moved from maine to san francisco and was staying at p minus's house so same connection like p minus was selling these products and so everyone knew p minus um so soul reached out to him and he was staying with him and so he's at p minus's house and he hears my tape there um, and he called my house and my dad answered and <laughs> I think I was, I was probably like 18 or 19. Like, Can um, I talk to controller seven? <laughs> he, he did. And if, if you've ever, if you've ever met soul, he's got like, he's got a good sense of humor and 
he did this whole like routine as if he was from a record label <laughs> real real serious um so then my dad gives it to, to me and then i start talking to the soul and uh he like i i didn't really know who he was i actually had the live poets children's that had just come out around that same time um but he's telling me and like i didn't know who he was but I was just like so excited and eager to like do any music mm-hmm. that I kind of I kind of didn't even care. He was like asking me if I wanted to make beats, and um, so I was sort of like, "Yeah, sure. <laughs> I didn't really really care." Um, but so it's not like he he wasn't like impressing me like, "Yo, I'm this guy from the East Coast." Uh, I think he thought he was like doing that (laughs) i didn't really know who he was um but yeah so then i don't know i talked to him on the phone a few times and then they had moved to oakland it was just soul mood swing and the pedestrian and scribe this guy that they knew um so i just went up there one day and um i don't this was like still very early internet, I guess. So I don't even know if I really knew what soul looked like. And then I met him and totally took me by surprise. Cause he's got long red hair and a ponytail, <laughs> huge beard. Um, on the phone, he would like say like done, yo, yo God done. Like, <laughs> he, I mean, he's he's a funny guy, so like he's he plays that stuff up. Um, but so I'm going to meet him, and I'm kind of like, I was, you know, it's company flow era. Like I'm really into that kind of rap, and so I'm kind of expecting to meet someone that's like, oh, serious about rap. And then um, I see him; he's got long red hair, beard, like kind of like loose clothes like not hip-hop at all and i just like couldn't believe like who who i was talking to and (laughs) and he had me go to this like market with him and he got a falafel and he's like eating the falafel (laughs) and there was like hummus all over his face (laughs) and he was talking to me and part of me was like like is this really like the same thing like how am i doing records with this guy but uh he's just i mean that's kind of how he is he doesn't really care about that kind of stuff yeah right um so then i just i started hanging out with them and the main thing was like it was really inspiring being around like people who were like really trying to do something and the creativity was just like flowing so fast like people were making stuff just at like this really rapid rate um and they were like sharing all these different tapes of things that so i was hearing like the the them the themselves record like the first five songs they had they gave me a tape of that and they gave me buck 65's man overboard Mm -hmm. um Oh no, Vertex, Vertex. It was Vertex. Um, and 
I just with I drove a lot because I would drive from San Jose to Oakland and I would listen to those over and over and it was so different than anything I'd really heard. And it was also exciting, like, oh like I know these people. Yeah. So it kind of put it in a different category. Um so that that was like the real spark for that whole thing. Like I just got super excited and um I think that was uh i guess like i guess i bought an mpc like right around that same time because mood swing mood swing had a mpc and i think that was kind of like what tipped me to move on from the eps okay perfect man thank you for that um you know quick question another another producer from the anticon stable is alias who was unfortunately in the news again um uh for his recent passing can you talk a little bit about how you guys met and um, how he struck you and sort of how you'll remember him. Sure. Um, yeah, so the first kind of wave of the Anticon guys, uh, they were there for a little bit, and so I knew them. Um, and then there was, like, this time when, okay, everyone else is going to come out. And uh, I think that Alias Bren, he was, like, he was one of the earlier ones that came out, um, and the thing, like, I did a remix. So they had the Deep Puddle Dynamics project. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave me an acapella of one of the songs. And I, I did a remix of it. And he was one of the first people to, like, really compliment it. Because mm. I think there was someone who didn't like it. <laughs> someone in the group that didn't, wasn't too fond of it. Um, but he was like super, super complimentary. Um, and so like that definitely made me like, he's, he was just like the sweetest guy, like super nice. And, um, so like, I was so self-conscious. I was like a little kid basically. Like, and I didn't really, I didn't have any other friends that did that kind of stuff. So around those guys i was always kind of nervous and um never felt like i had earned my place yet so he was kind of one of the first guys that really i mean soul definitely like boosted my ego a little bit but then alias i remember just him talking about that remix uh, it's like one of those moments kind of like when spider-man told me to keep going it was one of those mm-hmm. things that um yeah, it was like the the gas I needed to like keep going further. Um, this is super random and doesn't really have anything to do with anything. But you and I have actually met before. Um, we were both invited to a dinner in San Francisco at my friend Audrey's house, and their roommate's cat attacked your head. Do you remember <laughs> that? I. So I don't. I, that is amazing that you said that you were there <laughs> because. Whenever people talk about cats or dogs and like people say they're cat people, (laughs) I cite that night as the reason that I do not like cats. Yeah, it was it was a vicious attack. Um, It was. That was like the third roommate girl who like wasn't our friend's cat, too. So that was just fuel for the fire for us not to like her, too. But um, anyway, dude, apropos of nothing, I bring it up because um, (laughs) 
I was a big underground hip hop head at the time. I was in college. I went to UC Santa Cruz and I was kind of suspicious of Anticon. So I remember being like, all right, we're here. We're eating our pasta. I'm going to kind of like press this guy about like, what's this Anticon all about? Like, what are you guys <laughs> trying to do? Like, and are you accomplishing it? Kind of. So anyway, just a super random uh, coincidence that we were both there that same night. But uh, you just seem as just as humble and genuine uh, now as you were then. So I just had to throw that out there since we have you on That's, the podcast. That is amazing. <laughs> Best question ever. That's, I, I'm glad you said that because uh, I, I knew that we had met before and I was trying to figure out when. Yeah. And I, I never would have guessed that, but I... I definitely, I mean, I remember the cat. <laughs> Witness to the cat attack, yeah, uh, totally. Mr. Nate LeBlanc. On your on your newest record, the, the right hand joint, um, you have a joint called David that's uh-huh. like this chopped um, MC Light kind of 10% diss sample that seems like a subliminal diss. Is it about Dave Ma, number one, <laughs> or is it about the cat? Give us, who is that directed towards? It is not about Dave Ma. Uh, <laughs> uh, I will say it is about someone. Okay. But I won't say who. It, uh, <laughs> okay. It's a Dave. We'll take I it off it could, <laughs> it could be a Dave. Dave. Uh, David also for a while was a, um, a name you would call like lame people. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> like calling someone a Larry. Totally. <laughs> it, it, was around, right. it was around uh, some of the Anticon guys. They did like these like joke side things. And uh, a David was like a, a di- like Herb. Like- oh, okay. <laughs> right, right. Okay. That's now official podcast slang. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was a Dave real is, David. is beat red right now. <laughs> um, um, wow. One, one thing. Uh, we just have to say, dude, we love your music. Like, um, yeah. like I think Dave and I in particular have been following your career since the very beginning. I, you know, I, I heard about you when you were going to De Anza. So um, I just, I really like the, the way you make beats and like your approach to composition and it's approachable. Um, but it has kind of a macabre sense right. to it. And I just don't think enough people listen to your music or appreciate your music. So partly that's why we wanted to have you on. Plus, I want to tell my cat story. But um, just <laughs> here in public, I just have to say, like, you're really fucking good at making beats. And, like, um, I don't know if you're still doing it or where you kind of stand with. I know you have a family and a life. But, um, yeah, just, like, um, just wanted to kind of tell you that. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, in some ways, I feel... Like, yeah, maybe not that many people have heard of it and maybe would enjoy it. But then sometimes I'll listen to stuff and I'll be like, yeah, I can see why no one listens to this. <laughs> Are you working uh, on anything new currently? Uh, well, the most recent thing. So I guess when people listen to this, um, so I've got three mixtapes, mm-hmm. which I'm not like a DJ DJ. So like they're they're done like in a combo of kind of like my production style and like dj style so there's like edits and everything Mm. um but i so i had i had a psych mix and then a rap mix that i did a long time ago with this store in japan um so i reissued those on cassette and then i have a new mix which is like breaks and samples so it's like all just kind of blended together, just like famous samples. And mm. um, 
So hopefully by the time people listen to this, I will have gotten off my butt and actually put it on the <laughs> on the internet. That's that's the main problem these days. Is um, I do kind of pick away at stuff, but I just I work a regular job now and I have two kids and um, besides just like the time aspect of it, I don't have the mental energy to like fully fully do it the way I used to. Yeah. Um, so like the right-handed struggle project, which for anyone that hasn't heard any of this stuff in at the end of 99, I made something called left-handed straw, which, which was me just being a dumb kid and like coming up with like, all right, what's something that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Okay. That was my next left-handed straw. It was, in general, like I've always had the kind of self-deprecating, mm-hmm. like the fir- first tape was called A Waste of Tape and Paper. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was always kind of like that, which isn't a great uh, asset, but I always kind of did that thing of like, if I make fun of myself first, they can't make fun of me. Right. Um, but so left-handed straw was basically, I'd been hanging out with the Anticon guys and uh, I had all these beats and some of them were on things that like either just didn't turn into anything. and I just didn't want to waste them. Yeah. So I essentially was making like a mixtape to give to my friends of like, here's all the beats I've been making and like some of the stuff I sampled. Um, so that's why it's kind of got like beats and like interludes. It's got that style to it. Um, but I didn't think anyone like I, literally thought it'd make like 30 copies or something like that and um but this was like right at the beginning of when you could buy a cd burn room <laughs> it was right around that time and so i got a cd burner and i was going to berkeley at that time and um i started like i mean it still kind of amazes me because like nowadays i wouldn't even be able to do this uh even though more people know me now but I I sold like four or five hundred CDs out of my studio apartment. Wow! And I burnt burned every single one of them <laughs> one at a time. I cut every piece of paper with a a straight razor. Nice. Um, so it was just like a whole so different. So when you like, say you don't have the energy for it, this is the level of energy you're talking about. Like that's that's a young man's game right there. That that part of it, and then also just like. The enthusiasm, I mean, the energy, the energy nowadays, I think is, um, back then, not like I was at the forefront of any type of sound or anything, but there wasn't, you just kind of had samplers or drum machines, even like pro tools, like nobody had computers to do that kind of stuff. Um, so technology wise, we were all kind of like at that primitive stage, Mm -hmm. um, where nowadays you can have something like machine or Ableton that like you can do a lot of really complicated stuff fast and you can also like add live instruments like so easy where there are people like really good at that and I don't even have the energy to try to like keep up with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a sense, that's why, so like I put out right-handed straw 
like a year and a half ago. And it basically sounds like I made it in 2000. In a very good way, I would say. Yeah, the best way (laughs) to make a statement. Yeah, I mean, I did it on purpose and um, because, you know, it's kind of like this is how this is my sound. I'm not really at a point in my life where I'm going to evolve into this whole different approach. I mean, I do mess around with other stuff, but um, I I just thought, like, I'm just going to do what I know. And so in a sense, right handed straw is just like a replication of left handed straw. Sure. But different mm. if that so that was what i was going for and right um it was the same thing it was basically like i've got all this stuff i don't want it to be lost yeah right. so i'm just gonna put it all onto one thing um but it's a it's a whole different time period and like things like you basically you've got like a day or like a week of shine right um so like ironically, like left-handed straw came out when the in it, like I had dial-up internet, <laughs> and um, counting like the CDs and you know there's like thousands of copies of it out there, and people will still comment about it to me now, but then now like people don't even know that I put out another one. Right. So and you have every promotional avenue available to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Am I remembering correctly? Did you put out a mashup twelve as well? Um, I, it's like I did, Peter Bjorn so, and John over Get Ready. Yes. So I, the way that happened was, um, so it, here I'll tie up kind of like my evolution story. So, <laughs> and like I, I, people lump me in with Anticon a lot, but like I really I did like maybe like four beats for soul. I did two for Sage Francis. I think I did like two remixes. And then the rest of the stuff was like pretty much just my beats, Mm. but I was kind of in that orbit. Um, So like after that, I kind of, I moved to San Francisco and I kind of drifted away from them. And um, I was working at Amoeba and then, uh, bully records started and they put out these seven inches and so i did two eps with them it was just all instrumental music and um expansions right yeah expansions and then the other one's called egg and um and the reason it was called egg i don't know if i've told this to anyone before but it used to be a joke that Mood Swing 9 would say, like, if you see a record with an egg on the cover, get it, because they're always good. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think about my record. Yeah, we'll, so. we'll test that theory. <laughs> wow. Um, so I was working at Amoeba, and then I just had this, like, I had some success. Like, uh, I had those EPs. I did a mix CD with this store in Japan, and we sold a thousand of this like rap mix CD like really fast. And I had pressed up left-handed straw on vinyl myself in my apartment. Like I had it pressed and delivered to my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sold a thousand all by myself. I love the way those look with the, uh, the black screen on the, uh, the brown mm-hmm. uh, sleeve. It's just awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So I like screened all of those one by one in my, uh, in my apartment. Um, so I kind of had this in my mind of like, oh, I can do this on my own. Um, 
and I decided to quit working at Amoeba and I was, I told myself, okay, I'm going to try to be a real musician, which was like the worst idea ever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to quit working in this amazing music store with all these cool people so I can make music. (laughs) I mean, not, not even that. It's just when you have no schedule, you will basically do nothing. So yeah, I, I watched a lot of like I would eat lunch and watch Fear Factor, <laughs> uh, and I'd tell myself I'd make beats after that, and then it'd be like, all right, I'll do it tomorrow. Um, so I kind of had this like upswing where I was like I was doing a bunch of stuff, and then uh, then it like went down, and I just um, kind of like just stopped for a little bit like i just didn't have the energy to do it and i wasn't as motivated um and at that same time i started going on the soulstrut.com message board mm-hmm. and that was how that mashup happened um i was on soulstrut all the time and this was like right around like holotronics and diplo like sure that like infancy of sort of like those mashup type things uh when that was all happening i i used to buy records from turntable lab all the time and mm-hmm. i bought i bought a uh, motown acapellas and the peter Byrne and john the diplo remix 12 inch um which had the instrumental on it mm. um so I just happened to have, you know, they came in the same box. Oh, wow. And so it was one of those lucky things where they were both right in front of me. And so I just tried it. And then they, like, really synced up. And so I, I edited it in Pro Tools. and um, But then I posted it on Soulstrap, and people, like, really took to it. And it was on the Holotronics board. And then um, some... Let's see, I forget how I, someone approached me. They asked if we wanted to put out a seven inch. And um, so I was like, yeah, go for it. And um, they pressed it in in Europe. And I guess the distributor said, if you don't press it again, we're going to bootleg it. Because <laughs> um, it, it sold out like right away. Mm. Um, I think they did like 500 of them. Um, so it was just kind of like this random like fluke type thing. Um, so then they repressed an EP with like some other stuff on it. So in my career progression, that's kind of like an odd little, little yeah, it does, moment definitely there. doesn't sound like anything else that uh, that I've heard from you. I've definitely gotten good response to playing it, though. Like people are always coming up to the turntables mm-hmm. like, huh? <laughs> Especially when that uh, you, yeah. Peter Bjorn and John song was like inescapable. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, like, it has my name on it, but, like, it's not at all, like, what I would consider part of, like, my production. It's just, yeah, it was, like, a fun project. Um, so I think some people approached it and were kind of confused, like, oh, what is he doing now? Um, but I then, he was like, sad. Yeah. <laughs> then kind of coming back full circle, like, doing right-handed straw it was basically like right back to the beginning Mm. um so that other stuff like those remixes were kind of just like it was what was happening at the time yeah and it was just it was really fun and if someone wants to press up a record i'm not gonna say no (laughs) 
Right on. Right on. Well, hey, Controller 7, we're really uh, thankful that you could uh, make some time to be on the program. We want to encourage everybody. Um, I've been bumping uh, Right Hand Straw for the last couple of days. It's amazing record. Feels definitely seamless. Um, yeah, man, just thanks for coming on the program. Cool. Thank you for having me. Hopefully I didn't. I feel like I, if you've ever met me in person, like I do not talk this much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We prefer expansive answers as opposed to one word answers or oftentimes what happens when we interview people, they're eating. So this is great from our perspective. (laughs) Yeah. And and reliving your cat trauma with us. So thank Thank you very much, man. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And yeah, it was great. Thank you. Dead Bod Rap Pod. That was our interview with the affable Controller 7. Super cool cat. It was dope to hear him mention Dave Dub and Tape Master Steph. Uh, good friends of mine and also pillars of San Jose underground hip-hop. And really just underground hip-hop in general, if you dig deep enough. So shout out to them. Shout out to Controller 7 for taking the time to talk to us. Up next, we have a special segment by our correspondent, Hot Take Nate LeBlanc, who has put together a piece about music and skateboarding, skateboarding music, if you will. So I actually haven't heard this segment that Nate's about to do. Uh, So let's all be uh, attentive and surprised uh, for this next piece, Dad Bod Rap Pod. about skateboarding a lot and i think uh for two reasons one it seems to be coming up a lot in our interviews in the interview you just heard with controller seven he mentions that before the internet most of the cool music he ever heard was off of skate videos and i've heard several people repeat that to us over the time also when we interviewed domino um, from hieroglyphics he said that he thought of uh, what casual and dell and the guys were doing was skater music and when we interviewed Dell, both here on DadBot and on the Wax Poetics podcast, he mentioned that the thing that really made him happy about his seminal album, No Need for Alarm, is that it really resonated with skaters and that they used his music in a Plan B uh, skate video and that really helped it stay as popular as it has been. So um, there's certainly something to say about the kind of rise of whatever you want to call it, underground hip-hop or kind of like independent hip-hop um, as practiced by High Row, even though they were on major labels, but we don't have to get into that right now, and skate videos, which were these kind of like underground word-of-mouth things you'd pass around to your friends um, that are really just kind of 
um, relics of a past era. And we're collectors of all these relics of past eras, the cassettes, the magazines that make up the kind of hip hop canon. And another reason is because we watched um, three movies last year that had to do with skating. One was mid-90s, um, Jonah Hill's directorial debut. One was called Skate Kitchen, which is about a group of um, young women skaters in New York City and their kind of friendships and skating and life experiences. And then the other is the right, tremendous documentary, uh, Minding the Gap, by Bing Liu. And he... Um, was a skate kid in Rockford, Illinois, who was, it seems like in every skate crew, and as you're going to learn from this segment, I am not a skater. Um, I don't really know a lot of terminology, um, so please excuse any faux pas. Um, just kind of learning about this now as an adult. So he, it seems like there's always a kid who's riding behind the kids doing the tricks and filming skate videos. And so um, Bing kind of did did all of that, started to interview the friends, and then um, crafted what turned out to be an Oscar-nominated and truly remarkable film about their lives and kind of the de deterioration of their hometown. And, um, well, saying any more would be giving something away. So let me start here. There's a scene in mid-'90s where the uh, main character, Stevie, um, kind of becomes fascinated with the older kids that he sees who are doing skate tricks and decides that he wants to try it. So he gets this big wooden board um, from his older brother, kind of sneaks it away surreptitiously, which is kind of a sign of things to come for him later in the movie. And he goes out to the front yard and he just tries to stand on it, not even really push, but just to stand on it, and he falls off. Now, if this had been the Nate LeBlanc story, that would have been the end of the movie. I basically fell off of my executioner in my parents' front yard. I don't know, let's call it like 1987, 1988, when I was about the age he is in the, the movie, maybe a little younger, fell off, fell on my ass, and just kind of called it right there. So I'm I'm an indoorsy person. I never was had the kind of makeup to be a skater. It's just not my thing. So anyway, in mid-'90s, um, the confluence of music and skate culture comes in a variety of ways. Um, Stevie breaks into his brother's room and um, becomes fascinated with his meticulously curated um, collection of CDs. There's alcoholic CDs and liquid swords by Jizza and kind of everything you would need to have to be kind of ahead back then. Um, and you can tell that Jonah Hill is kind of exactly our age and from our era. And you can tell he just chose each one with care. Um, further, Nikkel Smith, who um, is one of the main characters in the movie, he's kind of a mentor to Stevie. Um, raps in real life. He's been on releases with Earl Sweatshirt and um, has a music career and now an acting career. Jonah also did this really interesting thing where he didn't release an official soundtrack for the movie. He has it as an evolving playlist. So he kind of uses hip hop and some punk rock and some other things. And he uses some old school like sample source kind of stuff. And so it's an ever evolving kind of picture of what, what influenced it and what it's been influenced by. Further, and I don't think this is a spoiler alert, though I guess I should give you guys a spoiler alert for mid-90s Skate Kitchen and Minding the Gap at the top there. He has Dell do a cameo. So Dell, the funky homo sapien, um, is in mid-90s, and he plays a uh, a homeless person who the kids meet at the park and have a conversation with. And in my research for this piece, I watched a bunch of skate videos kind of for the first time. I always found them to be incredibly boring. 
um, when I used to watch them as a younger person, um, there was a part in several of them where they filmed them talking to homeless people, which I just thought was interesting. But it maybe it's not that weird. Like you're, they always find themselves in the these part of the cities where you're not supposed to be. And they're always utilizing the built environment of the cities in these fascinating ways, kind of grinding on the rails and the stairwells and the benches and just kind of being extremely creative in public space. And obviously homeless people live in that public space, so you're going to encounter them eventually at times. Um, But what I think the point of mid-90s is, is that Stevie, the main character, kind of begins to find himself um, and his like kind of like loose family his crew through the course of going through and part of that is growing up and learning to like cooler music and finding out who you are and part of it is the freedom of breaking away from your actual nuclear family and like kind of finding yourself out in the street and in a way all of the movies are about that they're all about these young people who find a sense of freedom and uh, a sense of themselves in skating and I guess that's what I never understood about it. I guess I I was content with my family situation. I was cool to stay home. I never needed to get away from it. So I never really understood like what they were getting out of going and jumping off of everything and falling down and getting back up again, and there was a lot to learn there. And as I learned watching Skate Kitchen, which is available on Hulu and I definitely recommend you guys watching, is that was very different for the young women of that time. It's set in a contemporary New York, and it's based on a real group of friends. Um, I actually started following some of them on Instagram after watching this, so you get to learn about their lives in a very interesting way with that as well and um, what they had to face to just get space at the skate parks, and it's just an incredibly kind of rough ride to do it the way they wanted to do it and to like kind of make space for themselves within these harsh urban environments in New York. And of all of the movies, it's kind of the least about music other than the fact that, you know, the one of the greatest music artists of our time, Jaden Smith, um, stars in the film as well. Um, he's kind of the sensitive uh, one in one of the crews that these, these young ladies run into. So I texted a friend of mine, and I, uh, he, he skated, and um, he's been a real help to me kind of thinking about some of these issues. I asked him, have you seen this movie Skate Kitchen? And he's like, hold on, I'll watch the trailer. And then he texted me back, is this just a female version of the movie Kids? But it's like updated for now. And I kind of texted him back like, yes, but not in a bad way. Um, it's very similar in that Kids is this kind of genre-defining and like age-defining 90s movie where it's kind of about like the AIDS scare and these kids are running amok Um, and Skate Kitchen is sort of about that if it was from the perspective of one of the characters parents perhaps but not really Um, they're like skating might be inherently unsafe but it's certainly not as unsafe as like doing all these crazy drugs and giving people AIDS like we all know happens in kids so um I think it's it's well worth watching, and I think that um, it helped me understand that the falling is just as important as the landing of the tricks, and that there's a lot of value to be gained in like the determination of that. And then that brings me to Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is probably the best of these three films. It's a, a remarkable story, and what it really ends up being about is the kind of cycles of violence that take place in poor communities and how people can try to break free from that in their art. 
there's a moment at the beginning. It's actually the first moment of the film. We kind of put it on having heard lightly from movie blogs that it was good and we didn't know what it was about. And when we put it on there, these kids are just like bombing through empty streets. And my, I turned to my wife on the couch and I was just like, where are they? Like, where, where are they that there's no cars, there's no people? It looked like the middle of the day. And then it turns out that it's Rockford, Illinois. Um, Rockford is, uh, to me, famous from the comedy of uh, Natasha Leggero, who's from there. And she basically pitches it as the shittiest town in America. It's like kind of a, a town that um, the economy has left behind and there's... There's no way to move forward. Like she had to move out as soon as she could to have any kind of life. And a, a recurring bit in her comedy is that her parents love her brother more, even though he lives in like a van and is like a drug addict because he stayed in Rockford where she went to L.A. and became an incredibly successful artist. And that kind of encapsulates what I knew about it. Watching this film, I think it was um, striking um, that there's just such a depth of depression that ran through it and to escape from that depression and some other things that I'm not going to mention directly because I really want you guys to watch the movie is um, this need to escape and this yearning and there's a uh, way that skating does that for these kids they all kind of uh, coalesce around a skate shop and there's a figure that kind of looks out for them and helps them get their gear and things like that. And so I'm not sure exactly what that has to do with hip hop other than that. I think underground hip hop has proven itself to be a good sample um, source and a good background music. There's a, something about especially jazzy hip hop that um, really lends itself to the background for skate videos. So in order to see if any of these suspicions were correct, I wanted to talk to a friend of mine who's a pro skater um, named Jose Rojo and uh, he is one of the main people in the skateboard scene here, the skating, that probably sounded really dorky, um, scene here in San Jose, California, where I'm from. And so here's a little conversation that we had about kind of what skating means to him and uh, how music has kind of influenced his skating style. And I hope you enjoy it. Um, can you first kind of introduce yourself and say who you are and who you ride for and all that stuff? All right. Uh, my name is Jose Rojo. I'm from San Jose, California, and uh, pretty much been professional skateboarder um, for about 10 plus years, but been skateboarding my whole life. And uh, I currently now ride for a brand called Northern Company. Um Diamond Hardware, Royal Trucks, uh, Maddox Clothing, um, NC Board Shop, and uh, Bone Swiss Bearings. <laughs> right on. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about when you were growing up. And um, can you kind of tell me when you started skating and then just kind of let it flow into like when did you first start watching skate videos? Like, was that immediate or did you have to be doing it for a while? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I first started skating, man, I literally got my first skateboard when I was about, I'd say, four years old. And um, at the time, my older cousins were, they were already teenagers, and they were already 
skating all over the place and stuff. So every time they'd come over, they'd always bring a board, you know? So I was introduced to it super early. And so being around it early on, uh, my cousins would watch random, um, random contests on TV. And this was probably like in, dude, I want to say it was probably around 87 or something like that. Oh, wow. And, that's early. Yeah. And that's when I first, I'm, I was literally a fetus, you know, but I literally <laughs> remember um, distinctly watching this ESPN um, contest and, you know, it was like one of those vert contests and stuff. And that's when it, it like first hit me where I was like, Whoa, dude, this is crazy. Cause you know, it looking at it now, um, you know, I actually just watched that contest again recently. Oh, wow. Managed. Yeah. It's so cheesy though. You know, there was like some <laughs> super corny, like vision streetwear ads. Oh dude, it, it was, it was super funny, but, um, I mean, just watching those guys flying on a vert ramp that early on was was nuts to me you know and that's what made me hooked on 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 just like skateboarding as a whole but yeah it 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 pretty much started like literally in 87 or whatever wow that's incredible um as you got older and as like skating became not just like a thing you did but kind of a lifestyle do you remember like watching any videos and like hearing music for the first time that you wouldn't have normally heard oh yeah totally i i I think for for me, music's always been uh, huge in my life. But I remember being introduced to all different types of genres because of skateboard videos, you know. And 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 like, for example, I think the first video I ever watched, aside from that contest, like first real skate video was um, I want to say it was this promo video by this company called color skateboards like in i don't know it was like in the early 90s mm-hmm. um and that was crazy to me because there was like i think they put a bunch of random dude i'm kind of like can't remember what it was but it was more of like the pink floydy um sure. genre of music you know like and spacey then, rock yeah so 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 when I heard that, I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. And then, like, a couple of months later, I bought my first, like, legit um, 411 video. And uh, and it was, like, best of 411 or something like that. And um, I remember listening to, um, uh, what was it? It was Guru Jazmataz oh, Volume yeah. 1. Totally. Yeah, and... And it was in that video, and when I heard, um, can't remember the name of the track, but when I heard the track, I was like, "Dude, what is this?" You was know? it "Lounging"? That, That's like probably the best song off of that uh, that album. Yeah, I, I I agree for sure, but I don't think it was. It, it was it was something else. But but the but the thing that got me was just like the piano, hmm. and and I was like, "Whoa, dude, this is crazy!" You know, like this sounds super smooth. You know, and and, and and, you know, being so young to like, I don't know, to, for that, to have that effect on me, I was like, wow, you know, and then, and then after that, that pretty much triggered my 
that's when I I I had I had a favorite after that, you know what I mean? Right. So like so 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 every time there was skate videos, um the dude who would have like a sick like smooth hip hop song or something, like that was the dude I would gravitate towards and then that led into me um like loving like the girl and chocolate company and you know stuff like that you know because they were all hip-hop based at the time so. totally um, um we uh we were I've, I've been watching a bunch of skate videos kind of for the first time in my life and uh there is a kind of like it kind of seems to lend itself to like what we now call underground hip-hop even if it was like right high row or um like stuff like like kind of gangstarish kind of stuff that was on major labels but has that kind of jazzy like minor right, key, right. dark yeah. hip hop with the crazy yeah. lyrics. So when I started watching those videos, um, like that's when like the VHS video started coming out more often. You know what I mean? Because before it was like a, you know, like a new video would come out like every, you know, like every six months to a year sometimes. Right. It's and, so, um, uh, they made us wait so long for things in the pre-internet era. It's just yeah, like, but, we, we had patience. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, that's what was so awesome about that era. You know what I mean? Yeah. It is, it is like having that, having the anticipation, you know what I mean? And, and totally. like now everything's so, so overly saturated. It's just like, you know, it, it, it comes out and then it's, you know, and then it's quickly gone. Exactly. You know? It's ephemeral. So, it just comes and goes it, so quickly. Exactly. But, um, back to like the four one one uh, days, so then, you know, it went from like <clears throat> when I first heard um, Guru and all that stuff, it it it, um, it kind of opened up a whole, you know, like a whole new portal of music for me, you know. And then it went from like you know from that to like there was four on one videos that, you know, like I heard the Alcoholics for the first time, and um, and uh, dude. I mean, shit, the list goes on and on, you know what I mean? But a lot of it had to do with the more underground type of sound for sure. And then and then I remember watching this this Transworld video. It was called Uno. And and that video had a bunch of small parts. Each part was maybe like like a minute, maybe forty seconds or something like that. But Chad Muska at the time was like huge and um and they used a far side song for for his part and i was like dude what is this you know what i mean <laughs> and then yeah dude and then my whole obsession with like far side and hyro and all that stuff just like boom you know what i mean it just it just triggered and i was totally into this whole new um side of hip-hop you know totally. so it, we uh it, it, we interviewed domino who was the producer of casual sphere itself and a bunch of that other yeah, early high yep. stuff and he said the way that he heard about um those guys over in oakland was that they made skater rap and i was just yeah. like oh man that's crazy to me so in your opinion like what makes a good skate video like is it just about the tricks or is it about the production or is it like about the music and the way everything fuses together yeah, uh, uh, I, I think for, for me personally, uh, like a great video part is is um, is basically to me a stylish skater skating to like the perfect song, and um, 
like I'll give an example. Uh, there was this there was this video part that just came out, and it's like this, you know, it's like this young dude who like skates for Adidas. It's this Brazilian kid, and he, um, he's got a really distinct style, and it's super cool to watch. But um, the filmer edited uh, Crystal Waters, mm. uh, Gypsy Woman, to right, his right, part, right. and 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 like you know, most people would be like, dude. You know, like that's weird, you know, but it was so perfect with his style that it, it, it you know, it ended up being a really great part. You know what that's I mean? That's awesome. So, um, yeah, speaking I, of that, when you have had a chance to be in videos, do you get to pick your own song? You know, for the most part, um, I try to have as much say as possible with the music, but ultimately it, it's, it's, um, ultimately it, would generally be up to the filmmaker because you know they kind of tend to know what's best and what you would um look good skating to okay. you know yeah so totally. um but yeah like i definitely like to have input and you know if there's a song that i'm you know that i'm not feeling <laughs> you know I'll definitely yeah. you know I'll definitely address it or whatever you know can you sit, just kind of tell me like in the most general sense like what skateboarding has meant in your life I, I mean, skateboarding has been everything, you know, uh, skateboarding's probably, no, it is, it literally is my savior. You know what I mean? If it wasn't for skateboarding, I don't know where I would have been. You know, I, 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 I grew up in not the best places, you know, and, and, uh, it, it was like, uh, you know, it was like a salvation for me, you know, cause, uh, Every time I'd go skate, I would, I would not, you know, I, I'd be away from all the negative, you know, and, and I feel that like that's where I found myself the most. And, um, you know, I, it, it's, it goes hand in hand with music, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's music and skateboarding have that effect on me. And, you know, like it's, I mean, dude, it's ingrained in my blood, you know, it, it's, that's. You know, that's all I do, and that's all I've done my whole life. And you know, if it wasn't for skateboarding, also, I wouldn't have traveled all over the world. You know what I mean? Like, it's so crazy to me to think that that you know, like you know, that I was born and raised here in San Jose, and being able to have traveled to all the places around the world that I did is is dude, it's insane to me. And I think about that all the time. Like, wow. Why me? You know what I mean? <laughs> You're really so, fucking good at it. <laughs> dude, it was it, so crazy, you know? And, and like, now, more than ever, like, kids are incredible on skateboards, you know? Yeah. And, um, like, back to the VHS DVD days and all that stuff, yeah. um, I feel that that the generation of skateboarding that I come from is, like, the last of the, I call it like the golden era of skateboarding because that was like the, it was like the last era of, of, of basically DVDs. Right. And, and um, yeah. And I feel that, that um, like our era was like our era, we were able to, to make names for ourselves. Um you know, just because those DVDs are timeless now, right. you know what I mean? Totally. And, and 
yeah, and now with the whole, you know, with the internet craze and social media stuff, it, it's, it's, um, it all just, you know, it all just went Richter, you know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> you see all this crazy skateboarding every, every single day, right. but it's like awesome to say that, like, you know, it's amazing to say that like, Oh shit, I've actually, I've got a full part in enjoys bag of suck video. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, it's one of those timeless videos that, that, you know, that people love and continue to love, you know, even the kids now that watch it, you yeah. know, are just like, you know, so. Um, I often yeah. say just in like normal life stuff, we were really lucky people our age because we had an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. Like we're the last yeah. people who are not internet natives who will kind of ever be born. And so there's a, there's a distinctive way that we will see the world that I think it's important to capture. And now that we have these kind of platforms to share that, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Can you kind of tell me, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, like how important it is to show the falling in the videos and not just the, like the huge tricks. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it just shows all the kids that, you know, professional skateboarders aren't, aren't always landing their tricks. Perfect. You know, it's, um, we, we, um, like we, as professional skateboarders, we, we have a lot of pressure. We, we, we have to meet deadlines. We, you know, whether it's video deadlines or like magazine interview deadlines or whatever it is, you know, and, and, you know, the pressure's re uh, real, you know, and it's super hard and, and, we, you know, we definitely, as skateboarders, don't land tricks every try. You know what I mean? Like, I'll go out skateboarding and, you know, some days, you know, I'll be skating and, you know, I'm landing everything. And I'm like, wow, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'll go out the next day and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I just can't land anything. So, right. you know, it's just important for people, people to know that professional skateboarding isn't perfect, you know? And I think that's what's awesome about it. We all have our bad days, so. That last part in particular about, uh, Jose calling skating his salvation gave me goosebumps when uh, when we were on the phone. I don't think of myself as a journalist, really, um, but every once in a while, there it's making podcasts and doing you know real journalism is very similar. And the fact that you ask these kind of leading questions in the hopes that someone will give you the quote that they need that you need, and uh, in that case, I thought he really did, and I appreciate him taking some time out to talk to me. So I guess the point, if there is one, is that uh, making rap music and skating and all of these other kind of young urban forms of expression are really important and perhaps more important than people give them credit for because the end result for the artist or the participant is that they are not a defeated person, that they don't let life get them down, that they, they strive and they create. And I just think there's something really important about that that needs to be noted. Um, I wanted to plug a couple of things. I wanted to thank um, Jose, of course, and my dad bod cohorts, Damone Carter and David Ma. Um, 
And I wanted to thank my good friends Mark Arroyo and Chris Patton for helping me research this piece and kind of being my skating consultants and lending me some skate videos and just kind of talking to me about my weird theories about skating. Um, and just to wrap up this episode, I just want to bring it back to our Controller 7 interview. Um, hope you guys enjoyed that and that you'll listen to his music. And on that note, um, he has just released a series of tapes. They're available on his Bandcamp. One is called The Sound Of, which is a breaks and samples mix. One is called Sonoro, which is a psych mix. And one is called Bumps, and that's a hip-hop mix. Um, and so the digital files are available on Bandcamp, and the physical cassettes are going fast. Um, so make sure you grab those. Thank you for listening to Dad Bod Rap Pod. We'll be back next week. Uh, new episodes every Thursday at noon, available where most of the places where podcasts are heard. Um, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Dadbot Rap Pod and on Instagram, same thing. And thank you for listening.